If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thank you, Samantha, for reading our Easter passage this morning. Yes, we are talking about marriage on Easter. We are that church, and we are glad that you're here. And just like you heard Ryan say that, if you're here for the welcome, you heard Ryan talk about the fact that we're, we're committed to preaching through the Bible. We're committed to taking books of the Bible and walking through it passage by passage, verse by verse, because we can trust God's word. All of scripture points us to the gospel. The Old Testament is not a disconnected story. It's not uh, another version of God, another another set of stories that's disconnected from our New Testament, what we believe is the Old Testament points us to Jesus. The Old Testament, it points us to the story of Jesus. That There's stories in the Old Testament, there's heroes, there's people in the Old Testament, there's these characters in the Old Testament that are really shadows of Jesus. So we see these glimpses of the gospel. We see in the book of Genesis the gospel proclaimed through these stories, that, that the book of Genesis setting the foundation for our faith, setting the foundation for who God is, it helps us understand who he is and what he's going to do. It helps us to prepare the stage. It's setting the stage for the gospel. That's what the Old Testament does for us. And so when we're in the Old Testament, when we're in Genesis, we don't have to take a break because Easter is about the gospel. Easter is about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus taking our place on the cross, and we celebrate that. We celebrate the fact that the tomb is truly empty. And even in Genesis, you can see glimpses of that. Even in Genesis, you see him preparing the way for the Messiah. You see God orchestrating events to give us uh, the stage, make the stage ready for the gospel to be proclaimed. So we get to see that in the book of Genesis. And so that's why we do that. And the good part about that is because all of the Bible points us to the gospel, because even in the first couple chapters of our Bible, it's pointing us to what Jesus is going to do when he dies in our place, that we don't have to force this on Easter Sunday. Like we don't have to, we don't have to somehow come up a way for Easter and marriage, because we just happen to be a marriage, and kind of connect those in an awkward, weird way. Like the title of the sermon today is not resurrecting your marriage or something like that, right? We don't have to force it. You, we have to, I started thinking about some different ways you could title that, right? Like resurrecting your marriage would be the first one. You could talk about how it, the, the tomb was empty and maybe your marriage feels empty. Like maybe you, we could talk about those things, right? We could force it a little bit. You could talk about, well, yeah, the the veil was definitely torn, I'll tell you that. We could, there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of 
force the issue a little bit. You could say, yeah, I'd like to, sometimes I think about burying him in a borrowed tomb. Like you could think, there's just ways. I, I asked Kai for some input on that, and he said, how about the honey and the, the bunny? Like the bunny and your honey, or I don't know how excited, but it was, I felt like I'd throw him under the bus by giving his example. So we don't, we don't have to force it, because we can just trust the text. We can just trust that all the Bible's pointing to Jesus. And here's what I've loved so far. If you've been with us for a while, we've been walking through the first uh, couple chapters of Genesis, and we've been looking at God's creation story. And here's what it's done for us. It's really helped us develop our Christian and biblical worldview, hasn't it? Like, when you start talking about foundations, you start talking about creation, what it's doing for us is it's helping us develop a healthy, uh, biblical way of viewing the world. That's what a worldview is. It's how we view the world. It's how we understand the world. It's how we understand the big questions in life. How did we get here? What, what is our purpose? What are we supposed to be doing? Uh, what, what are we supposed to be accomplishing? What, what, what's the meaning of life? Well, all those big questions are answered in these foundational stories of creation. So we looked at God creating the world. And that, when you believe that, when you embrace that truth, then that begins to form your worldview. That begins to show you how you see the world. It begins to help you understand the way you interpret all the things that are going on in the world. So we, we've been developing this biblical worldview that Kai talked about that we were created as people. We were created in the image of God, and that begins to form our sense of self-worth and our sense of value that God has formed us. He has created us in his image to reflect his image to the world. We are image bearers of Almighty God, that this creation story gives us that worldview. In the last couple of weeks, we've talked about work and rest and that God gave us work as a good gift before the fall, before sin came into the world. He gave us work. He gave us a job. He gave us a purpose. And anything we do in aligning with God's purpose to, to subdue the earth, to cultivate the earth, to be fruitful, multiply, to uh, develop the social world and harness the natural world. When we do that, we are entering into the high calling of God. So when we're when we're teachers and when we're uh, building bridges and we're contractors and we're building houses and we're developing things and we're programming computers, all these things are the high calling of God. This, this view of God creating work, it builds a Christian biblical worldview to which we can understand the world. And then we talked about the rhythm that God wants for us to work and take a day off and a rest. And that's this rhythm that he has prescribed for us. And all these things kind of set that foundation. So as we talk about marriage today, that's a part of that process. It's a part of us building a biblical worldview by which we can see the world and understand the world. And so in this passage in Genesis, when God creates marriage, he institutes the first marriage, he officiates the first wedding ceremony in the garden, we can see some things that help us form a biblical worldview about marriage. And I want to make some observations with us about that today. And the first one is that, God, that marriage is God's plan. If you look back at your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, it talks about this, that marriage is God's plan. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So that, that language should be very striking for us, right? That God was creating the world in Genesis chapter 1, and he kept saying over and over that it was good. Thanks, God. He kept creating things and saying, he made this, he made that, and it was good. We're going to get this together in just a second. And then here, after he's made everything and declared that it was good, 
for the first time, God says it's not good. And it should capture our attention. It's like, what? wait, God made everything, and it was good. It was perfect. There's no sin in the world yet. God made everything good. And then he says it's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. And so God's plan, his idea, was to make a helper suitable for him, to make a partner for Adam, to create a woman, and to join them in marriage. So marriage is ultimately, right? It's this picture that the Bible gives us that marriage is God's plan. It's God's idea. Max Lucado is an author that a lot of you know. He's a pastor in San Antonio. He said it this way, God created marriage. No government subcommittee envisioned it. No social organization developed it. Marriage was conceived and born in the mind of God. So this forms our worldview. If God created marriage, if it was his idea, if it was his plan all along, then we should look to him for what marriage is supposed to be. Does it make sense? So we don't let the culture define what marriage is. We don't let the, the, the common popular ideas in our world today define what marriage is. As a Bible-following Christian, as a Christ follower, we go back to the Bible and say, okay, wh- who, who made this thing? Who created this thing? Who invented marriage? And it says very clearly that this was God's idea. It was God's plan. He created marriage. So we look to him for the definition of it. That's how you form a biblical worldview. That's how when you see, you hear other worldviews that are in contradiction to this, you go, no, I'm going to reject that because I'm going to stand firm on this truth. I believe this is the word of God. So marriage is God's plan. Marriage is also God's production. What I mean by that is that it's his doing. It's his creation. He didn't just come up with the idea and left us to work it out. He actually produced this product that we know as marriage. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up that place with its flesh. And he took that rib and in a miracle, right? We have to just embrace the miraculous in the story. He took that rib from that man, from Adam, and formed it into Eve, formed it into a woman. And then he brought her to the man. And there's this picture of this wedding, right? There's this picture of God the Father giving away the first bride. He created her for the man, and then he brought her to him. He didn't wake Adam up and say, hey, go find her. Go look. He brought her to him and gave her away to him. This was God's doing. This was God's work. This was God's creation. It was not just his idea, but he provided it. He he produced it. It was his product. And so this this continues to build this solid biblical worldview for us that we understand that this was God's plan and his creation, his production. And so we now know how to encounter the different ideas about marriage that are in our culture. We encounter them with truth. We don't counter them with hostility. We don't have to argue and be angry about it. We just counter them with truth. No, we believe that God created this. This was his idea. So we believe that what he says about it is most important. We believe what he says about it is what we should embrace, that marriage is God's plan, marriage is God's production, but it's, it's also his provision. You see, the first question really we're asking is what? What is this marriage thing that God created? And then you start, you have to start asking why. Why did he do this? And so this is where we start answering that question. Marriage is God's provision. It is meeting a need. You heard us say that. You, heard the, you saw it in the passage that it's not good, God said, for the man to be alone. And so marriage is his provision for that not good, his, his solution to that problem. And so God provided Eve to Adam, and it says that she's a helper suitable for him or fit for him. 
That word helper is actually, it's actually an, a, a military term, and, and ladies, you'll love this because it, it's actually a word of strength. It, it's not a word of like servitude. It's a word of strength, that, that Eve's gonna come in and strengthen Adam in his weaknesses, that he's, she's gonna compliment him. He's, she's a helper suitable for him. She, he's, she's a helper that's fit perfectly for him, that God designed this and he provided in marriage, someone to balance us out. That's what marriage is supposed to look like. It's a complimentary piece that God saw Adam and he knew he was alone. He said, that's not good. He shouldn't be alone. I'm gonna bring him a suitable helper. I'm gonna bring him someone that perfectly compliments him. I'm gonna bring him someone where he's strong, she's gonna be weak, and where she's weak, he's gonna be strong. That, that, that's exactly what God is doing here, that he's providing for Adam a helper that's strong where he's weak. It's both ways, right? It's not just that Adam was just this clueless guy, like every guy in every commercial that you've ever seen, that couldn't figure anything out, and his wife was there to save the day, right? It's not that. It's both. It's Adam needed a helper. God had given him a job to do. Be fruitful, multiply, cultivate the earth. He needed a helper alongside him that would bring strength in his weakness, but Eve is going to be created by God as a woman with different sets of strengths and weaknesses, and so Adam's gonna strengthen her. Adam's gonna help her. They're gonna work side by side in the calling that God has given them. That's the intention. That's the purpose. That's the provision of marriage that God provides. That he is planning this out, He's creating and producing this, and he's providing for our need. Now, here's where the story gets really good, because here's where it gets even bigger. Because all those things are true, and all those things we see in the book of Genesis, but in the rest of Scripture, this whole idea of marriage gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Because what ultimately what you see in the Bible is that marriage is God's picture. That, that marriage is God's portrayal of something. It's a picture designed to tell us something about God. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Why do they say that? Because pictures tell stories. You see a picture, and so many times behind that picture, you go, man, there's, there's a story there. And it may be a family picture, and you see a picture, and you go, yeah, I know the story. And let me tell you the story of how we got to this point where that happened. But pictures tell stories, and that's, that's one of the things we like about pictures. That's one of the reasons we save them, because they remind us of the stories behind them. And I was thinking about this concept, and I wanted to maybe just drive it home and make sure you understand that when you see a picture, there's oftentimes a story behind it. And so I found some that I thought were pretty interesting. Uh, go ahead and show that first one. This is, this is on a coat hanger from a cleaner's. D do you see the picture of the guy with a coat hanger in his throat? I, I don't understand what in the world or where this came from, right? I have no idea, but there's obviously a story behind that that I would like to know. Like, what in the world? Okay, do not swallow the coat hanger. Fine, I'll put that on my list of things not to do. Like, I, but you see that picture, and you know, that, there's a story behind that. I have another one that I didn't have to find on the Internet because I found it in my house one day. Watch out, bear will eat your socks. And you need to know that bear is the, a dog that we have at our house. Uh, he's a golden doodle. We named him bear because he's stupid. Um, and he's scared of everything. No, we named him bear because he looks like a teddy bear. I, I got that wrong. But 
we found out really, really early that he likes to eat socks. So there's a story behind that picture. And I love to watch out. It's like, I didn't, I didn't want to take a step in the house when I saw this. Like, oh no, will he eat them off my feet? Like, what's going to happen here? The story behind the picture. This one I absolutely love. In light of recent events, no Oreos will be allowed in the library. <laughs> I want to know that story. That's definitely a college library, if I've ever seen one. Like, what in the world? You see a picture, there's a story behind it. Maybe this is my favorite one, the last one. <laughs> Lonesome Dove fans, anybody? We don't rent pigs. You go, what, how random of a statement is that? And then you realize, man, a man who will rent a pig is hard to stop. It's hard to stop. That doesn't even make sense unless you know the story behind it. But you see a picture and there's a story behind it. And so here's what I want you to grasp today. Here's the good news of the, of the Sunday is that marriage is God's picture. And marriage is supposed to tell us a story. Marriage is supposed to tell us a story about God. Our marriage, God gave us marriage. He planned it. He produced it. He provided it. All those things are true. But ultimately, he gave it as a picture to communicate some truth to the world about how much God loves us. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Ultimately, that's what we learn in the scriptures. And in Ephesians chapter 5, and, and this verse will be on the screen, so you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, Paul's in this section of Ephesians where he's talking about relationships, and in, this, in the midst of that section, he's in a small section in there that he's talking about marriage specifically. And at the end of that section, he says this, and he quotes Genesis 2, helping us see the bigger picture from Genesis 2. And he says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2, foundation. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here's what Paul does. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about how we're supposed to interact in marriage, how the husband's supposed to love his wife and the wife's supposed to follow, his hus follow her husband and they're supposed to uh, kind of submit to each other mutually and serve together and work together and all these things. He's talking about that love relationship in marriage. And then he says, it goes back to Genesis. It goes back to when God created marriage, his plan, his production, his provision. God did that. And then Paul says, it's a great mystery what God did because he took two people and made them one flesh. There's a spiritual component in here, that there's one life shared between two people. That's why we do it the way we do it, right? One checking account, one, one family, all these different things. Like there's this one, two people, one flesh, and Paul says that is a great mystery. It's hard to comprehend. And then he turns it all upside down. He says, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. So what Paul says is that this whole marriage thing is a picture of how much Jesus loves his church, that how much Jesus was willing to demonstrate his love for his church. But that's what marriage is ultimately doing. It's giving the world a picture of God's love for his people. So Paul says it's a profound mystery, but if you really understand it, you will understand that it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the good news of what Jesus did for us. So, 
Our marriages are a plan from God, a creation that God brought into our lives to provide for us in specific ways. But ultimately, our marriages are supposed to point, point back to him. Our marriages are supposed to reflect God's love for his people. That the Bible says that we are, as Christ followers, we are the bride of Christ, that Christ is the groom and we're this bride, that, that one day there will be a, a marriage feast, a wedding where we are joined together for all eternity with our groom, Christ, that we as collectively, as the church, as the body of Christ, we are also his bride. And so this marriage picture, this temporary thing that we call marriage on earth, that, that is designed to point us to the truth behind it, to the story behind it of God's faithfulness and his love. So this, this message today, just so you know, it's not a whole lot of how-tos, right? It's not a lot of practical, hey, here's how you need to be a better husband, here's how you need to be a better wife. That's not really the text. That's not the whole focus of Genesis chapter 2, and so it's not the focus of the sermon either. The focus of the sermon is building a worldview, understanding what God has done, understanding the big picture of marriage. But let me give you one practical thing here. Let me give you one practical way to kind of take something home from this message. And here's how I would say that. When we embrace God's pattern for marriage, we put the gospel on display. So when you look at Ephesians 5 and the verses right before that, the verses that we did in the call to worship, you see a pattern that God presents for this marriage. Remember, he created it. It was his idea. He produced it. So we should look to him for how it's supposed to work. And in this pattern, you see love. And when we embrace God's pattern for marriage, what we're doing is we're showing the world the gospel. We're putting the gospel on display when we embrace God's pattern for it. When we love each other in our marriages unconditionally, without condition, when we love each other when they don't deserve it and they haven't earned it and they haven't done anything lately to make me feel like I should love them. When, when that is happening in our marriages, right, what we're doing is we're putting God's love on display because God loved us and pursued us when we didn't deserve it, when we couldn't earn it. It's a picture of the gospel. And so when we embrace God's pattern and we love each other with that kind of agape, unconditional love, here's what's happening. We're putting the gospel on display. And that's the ultimate purpose of our marriage, is for it to be a picture of the gospel. And so there's this chance for us to embrace God's pattern and to enter into our marriages with that in mind, right? And to put this gospel of God, his love for his people on display for everyone. So why is that so hard? Why is that so difficult? Why is marriage so challenging? Don't look at me that way. Am I the only one? Like this, is, like, this is not an easy thing, right? Why? Why is marriage such a difficult thing? Well, the Bible tells us, and we haven't got there yet, but we're going to get there, that, that sin enters the world and it messes everything up. Because sin comes in the world, the world is now jacked up, crooked on blocks. That's just how we can describe it. That sin has brought in, and it specifically is going to hurt the marriage relationship. But God, God created a helper perfectly suited for Adam. And then sin came in, and all of a sudden they started butting heads because they're different. There's conflict. It's not perfect anymore. Sin has messed this thing up. 
And so our sin and our hardened hearts make this more difficult. It doesn't mean that God's not still using it as his picture. It doesn't mean that God's plan has changed. It just means that this is more difficult. And so if you feel like marriage is difficult, if you feel like this is a challenge, understand you're in a good place. We are not a bunch of people who go, yep, we got this marriage thing figured out, man. It's awesome. We just reflect in the gospel all the time. On the way to church this morning, we were reflecting the gospel. That's not what this looks like. This looks like a bunch of people that are like, yeah, we, we're messed up people and we've entered into these marriage relationships and we're all messed up in these relationships and it's hard and it's difficult, but God's still working in it. So Jesus said some things about this too. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 19. We're still looking at quotes in the New Testament from Genesis chapter two. And Jesus was sitting there talking and some people came up. They're always asking him questions, right? And they're asking him questions about divorce. Hey, when's it okay, Jesus, to divorce your wife? Jesus answers that really, really interestingly. He says, Matthew 19, verse four, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis two, then Jesus is gonna add to it because he's God. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Remember the question, here's his answer. God did this, his idea, his plan. So if God joined you together, you don't separate. You don't do this. Here's their question then. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Because stay with me, y'all. I know it's getting uncomfortable. They said, okay, if you're saying we shouldn't divorce our wives, why did Moses say it was okay? Jesus says, because sin. Sin messed this up. But in the beginning, that wasn't God's original plan. That wasn't his original intent. That yes, it's a struggle, it's difficult, it's challenging, because we are self-centered people and we focus on ourselves instead of God most of the time. We just do. And so why is this hard? Because our hearts are hard. Why is this such a challenge? Because we have sin in our lives that's messing this whole thing up all the time and making it more challenging than it was ever intended. And Jesus says, that's why, but in the beginning it was not so. So let me give you some hope in the midst of this kind of difficult part. Our failures in marriage can still remind us of God's faithfulness. I'm not just saying that, y'all. This is the absolute truth. We've, we've all messed this thing up. We as a people, we as a culture, we as Christ followers, we're, we're not a whole lot better than anybody else, right? We're, we've messed this thing up. We've broken our marriages. Our failures are in front of us all the time. And none of that cancels out God's plan. None of that takes away his faithfulness. In fact, it should in some ways stand as a striking contrast. Our faithlessness just highlights his faithfulness. That God is always faithful even when his people are not. 
And so our failures in marriage, our struggles in marriage can still remind us of God's faithfulness. They should point us to the fact that even though we are unfaithful and we fail and we drop the ball and we struggle and we're challenged by self-centered thoughts all the time in our marriage, that guess what? God is not that way and he never is. He's constantly pursuing us. He's constantly going after us. He loves us perfectly. Jesus Christ loved us and laid his life down for us. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us, that Jesus conquers all of our failures. He wipes them away and he allows, it allows him to get the glory even in the difficulties of our marriages, even in the, the failings of our marriage. A guy named Ray Ortland wrote a book, short book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. Really good, really helpful. It says it this way, if you're married, even if your marriage in some ways disappoints you, still, God was the one who joined you two together. Your imperfect marriage in the world of today is as sacred in the sight of God as was the perfect marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Your marriage is a grace from above. Your marriage is a miracle. Your marriage came to you with a touch of God upon it and it remains dear to him. Your marriage has the potential by his grace to bring redemption into the broken world we all live in now. Your imperfect marriage is therefore worth celebrating. Our marriage is a picture of the gospel. Our marriage points to how much God loves us, that he was willing to send Jesus to die in our place to make us his forever. And our marriage, in our best days, it's just a shadow. It's just like a glimpse of how great God's love is for us. And our marriages in our worst days and our most challenging days are still pointing to the faithfulness of God and there's still reason to celebrate because God is bigger than that. He's conquered all of our disappointments and our failures. So marriage is hard, it's okay. We're all in this journey together. We're just trying to, trying to be more like Christ. We're trying to follow him closer. We're trying to reflect his image better. And even in the disappointments, even in the struggles, God shows how great he is. Another book I would recommend to you, like, if you don't read a book on marriage every year, like that would be a good challenge for you to just to kind of continue in your journey of understanding it. Another book I would recommend is Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. Here's what he says about marriage and the gospel. The, me, the reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful, I love that phrase. It's painful sometimes and it's so wonderful. The reason why is because it's a reflection of the gospel which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel message, there's pain and there's wonder. Good Friday to Easter Sunday. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Think about it. We're more sinful and flawed than we want to admit and believe. Good Friday. Jesus died in our place. That was the only way that God could rescue us was him pouring out his wrath on his son, punishing Jesus instead of us for our sin, for our flaws. 
But at the very same time, Jesus was willing to go to the cross. He was willing, like Ryan said at Good Friday, to drink the cup of wrath. He was willing to do that to demonstrate his love for us, that even while we were sinners rebelling against God, Jesus died for us. This is the gospel. And our marriages point to that. Our marriages in the good days and the bad days, they all point to that. They point us to a God who doesn't give up on us even when we walk away from him. A God who's faithful to love us even when we chase after other lovers and we chase after idols. A God who's faithful to pursue us even when we don't want to be pursued. A God who's willing to love us even when we are unlovely. That's a picture of the gospel. And that marriage paints that picture. And guys, that's what we celebrate today. We celebrate a God who was willing to send his son to die in our place, to pay the punishment for our sin so that he could demonstrate his love for us and bring us into his family as his chosen and beautiful bride forever. So let's be a church that values marriage. Let's be a church that holds the, this thing that God made called marriage up high. Let's be a church that celebrates marriage. Let's be a church that walks with each other as we continue to make our marriages better to glorify God. Let's be that church that puts our marriage on display, the good and the bad, for the glory of God to show the world how much God loves us. Let's pray. God, I wanna thank you for marriage. I want to thank you for this picture that it gives us, that it reminds us of how much you love us. It reminds us of the truth of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us to show his faithful love forever to us. And God, I just pray that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know that love, that has not experienced your love for them in a personal way, God, that today would be the day that you would connect the truth of your word and the truth of your love into our hearts. And God, we would respond to that truth by following you. Pray for conversations around lunch. I pray for conversations in the hallway. I pray for conversations <coughs> after baptism that will be honoring to you and that will lead people to a deeper understanding of your love for us. And God, I pray that in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.